Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. On this week's New Statesman podcast, we discuss Rebecca Long Bailey's sacking, the Robert Jenrick affair, and you ask us, why are Boris and co so bad at party management? So as we record the New Statesman podcast today, Thursday afternoon, we have just heard the news that Becky Long Bailey the Shadow Education Secretary has been sacked from the front bench. So unfortunately for Stephen Bush lovers out there, he has had to jump off the podcast to go and, and cover that breaking news. But luckily I have Alva with me to explain what on earth is going on. So Alva, what, what is behind this? Yeah, so Rebecca Long-Bailey earlier this morning shared um, an interview the actress Maxine Peake, who's a sort of long-standing Corbynista, an interview with The Independent in which Maxine Peake basically repeated an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that the the policeman who, I don't even know whether it's appropriate to repeat a theory like this, but just for people's information, basically saying that the the policeman who had killed George Floyd in Minnesota was using a technique that the American police are trained in by the Israeli army. Right, okay. Rebecca Long Bailey shared the piece and with a comment saying something like, oh, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but something like, oh, Maxine Peake is a gem. And then there's sort of been mm. people just sort of discussion, mainly, I have to say, just on sort of lefty Twitter. It wasn't it wasn't widely picked up elsewhere. People saying, oh, I, I hope that Rebecca Long Bailey just hadn't read this before she shared it. But either way, she has now been sacked by Keir Starmer. So I suppose Anush, I suppose the question is, I mean, it's so it's so soon after it's been announced, maybe there'll be I presume that there'll be a statement from Keir Starmer and a bit more information, but I suppose the question is, what does this mean about Keir Starmer's leadership and what will it mean for Rebecca Long-Bailey and the left of the party? We just have the statement through, so this is from a spokesperson for Keir Starmer. This afternoon, Keir Starmer asked Rebecca Long-Bailey to step down from the shadow cabinet. The article Rebecca shared earlier today contained an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory as leader of the Labour Party, Keir has been clear that restoring trust with the Jewish community is a number one priority. Anti-Semitism takes many forms, many different forms, and it is important that we're all vigilant against it. 
So I, I suppose one notable thing about this is is the speed with which he's asked her to stand down mm. because she only tweeted the piece very recently today, didn't she? Yeah, I think it was this morning. Mm. Oh, so she did apologise a few hours ago saying that, saying I retweeted Maxine Peake's article because of her significant achievements and because the thrust of her argument is to stay in the Labour Party. It wasn't intended to be an endorsement of all aspects of the article. Yeah. Just reading that tweet now and and you can see the one beneath it, which was posted five hours ago, is the tweet of the article saying Maxine Peake is an absolute diamond. So getting out of the weeds of uh, which tweets were sent when, this does tell us a great deal about Keir Starmer's leadership, particularly in contrast with that of Jeremy Corbyn, whose administration, of course, Rebecca Long-Bailey was a crucial part, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, exactly. I think that actually people who have been paying close attention to what Keir Starmer has been saying since he became leader and during his leadership campaign, there won't actually really be that much surprise at this move. I think that he will be pleased in some ways, even though that's a weird word, he'll be pleased that he has the opportunity to show the direction of movement within Labour on the issue of anti-Semitism. In a way, it's his first real test because One of the areas of concern among groups like the Jewish Labour movement who have been quite concerned about Labour's handling of anti-Semitism allegations in the past is that because Keir Starmer is a lawyer and has a great deal of respect for due process, that there wouldn't be very much visible clamping down on anti-Semitism in the early months of his leadership because um, there would be delays in order to follow due process and see that the requisite investigations took place. But this gives Keir Starmer a really a really good opportunity to signal his firm stance against anti-Semitism because, quite crucially, he hasn't sacked Rebecca Long-Bailey from the party or expelled mm-hmm. her as an MP, but he's able to sack her from his shadow cabinet in a way that sends a very clear signal about what, what is and isn't acceptable under his leadership. Yes, because that idea of zero tolerance on anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is that is a phrase that's been that's been used a lot during the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn as well as Keir Starmer's leadership campaign and his his own leadership too. But mm. we've never really known what zero tolerance of anti-Semitism actually looks like until now, have we? Yeah, well exactly because you can't you can't really expel people right away. Like there is an of delay with these things. I mean, Rebecca Long-Bailey will continue to be a member of the party, I think, for a mm. while. I mean, we have no idea at this stage whether Labour will launch an investigation into this or what the follow-up will be. But definitely in terms of his shadow cabinet, that is something that he has absolute control over. We've seen like very clearly around the discipline of the shadow cabinet that Rosie Duffield a few weeks ago resigned as a whip in the shadow cabinet for breaking lockdown to see her partner and and then again there's been a very firm clampdown on Rebecca Long-Bailey in this instance. Yeah that's a good example to use as well because it suggests something wider about Starmer's leadership than just his you know just his stance towards anti-semitism and rebuilding trust with with Britain's Jewish community because it almost says more about the discipline with which he runs his front bench than the issue at, at hand for this particular row. Mm. 
Yeah, I think I think it's it's an interesting one because you know Rebecca Long Bailey speaking to us on this podcast mm. before the results of the leadership election, but when it was you know pretty clear that she wasn't going to win and it was definitely going to be Keir Starmer, I think that she set out quite a clear path for herself in the in the years ahead and that she really made it clear in that interview that she would never criticize the leader publicly and that I think she was quite resentful of what she saw as party colleagues undermining Corbyn during the Corbyn years and she was very determined not to do that in the Starmer era and as someone who had been like very firmly on the left of the party and a Corbyn ally and seen as the sort of heir apparent to the Corbyn era it was quite striking Mm. and it seemed as though Rebecca Long-Bailey, even though she is from that wing of the party, would maybe try to carve out a different kind of career for herself under Starmer. And and it is notable, actually, that in her brief as Shadow Education Secretary and someone who, you know, during the leadership campaign and beforehand in the, in the Shadow Cabinet when they were both serving Jeremy Corbyn as leader, they do differ politically. Mm. She did not sort of break rank with Keir Starmer's stance towards school reopenings. No, not at all. And I think I think there were questions around whether she was going to be the figure in the in the Starmer era that the left of the party rallied around, or if actually she was going to carve a new path for herself as someone more distinct, a sort of Margaret Beckett figure. And I think that she kind of was going for the latter approach, which makes this so interesting mm. because unlike some figures from the Corbyn era who were sacked from the shadow cabinet, she has stayed. And I think she was to some extent making it work. And it just, it's an example of this was not a conscious rebellion against Starmer, even though Maxine Peake's views on Starmer have been quite clear in the past that she is, you know, would not necessarily favor him, but, you know, I don't think this was a conscious dig at Starmer or, um, or anything like that from Rebecca Long Bailey. I think it was it's more symbolic of the sometimes difficult relationship between those on the left of the party in Parliament and party members or other people on the left of UK politics who espouse anti-Semitic views. And it, it can be kind of murky. It's difficult to talk about as a journalist, but I think that Keir Starmer is not is not getting into the wishy-washy did she really mean to say that? Does she really believe it? Did she even read the piece? He's just being very clear that those views are completely unacceptable in Labour. And of course, it contrasts rather uncomfortably with another story today of another minister, well, this time a minister mm. rather than a shadow minister embroiled in scandal, the shadow, uh, the, the sorry, the housing secretary, sorry to already demote him, the housing <laughs> secretary, Robert Jenrick, who is under pressure at the moment and under scrutiny because of a planning approval that seemingly gave preferential treatment to Richard Desmond, who is the former owner of of the Express, who has a housing project that he'd like to do in West Ferry, which is in East London's Docklands. And there's been all sorts of revelations about how him and the minister had conversations about this, about this project over text message. And some emails show that Robert Jenrick was aware that Desmond wanted to get this approval through before 
it would have to be subject to a charge from Tower Hamlets Council, which is called a community infrastructure levy. So he's under intense scrutiny at the moment. The Conservatives are standing by him and he's insisting that he's been transparent and released everything to do with with his communications with with Desmond. But there's, you know, an awful lot of talk on on the left about how Keir Starmer hasn't called for Robert Jenrick to resign, unlike Leila Moran of the Liberal Democrats. Mm. And yet he has sacked someone from his front bench. Of course, the two things are completely unrelated. But what does this what does this tell us about his leadership? I think that it, it's just an, another example. Stephen wrote a piece on this. It's another example of the of the complete pragmatism of Keir Starmer, I think, in that I think he doubts that that Robert Jenrick will be sacked and is not necessarily convinced that if he added to if he added his voice to the calls for him to go that it would make much of a difference and I think there's probably a feeling with Keir Starmer and his top team that to call for something that isn't going to happen only undermines you whereas I think it's different if you're the third party if you're the Liberal Democrats you need to be sort of punchy and spiky and fast to get any sort of coverage and therefore it, it is worth you making that stance and being a bit bolder in order to also be included in the in the conversation. But yeah, it is funny, Anush, that I mean, right before we started recording this, we thought we were just going to be talking about Robert Jenrick. <laughs> and then like, that's the sacking that it hasn't happened and probably isn't going to happen. I mean, we don't know yet, um, but it's looking unlikely. And I think that what we've seen from the Dominic Cummings affair is that if people don't want to go, there really isn't much that can force them. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And um, as Stephen's not able to be with us, I should plug the point that he made in in his morning call email this morning, that you can never tell which scandals are going to stick and sort of shift public opinion and, and remain in people's consciousness, even if the person who is under the spotlight doesn't resign, and, and which scandals are just going to disappear and no one's really going to care about them. He, he contrasts the Jennifer R. Curry case that came out during the election campaign and was embarrassing for Boris Johnson, but clearly not embarrassing enough for it to affect his electoral chances, with the Dominic Cummings row, which clearly did have a big impact on public opinion. So we don't know what kind of scandal this this Robert Jenrick one is, which which sort of what kind of reaction that it will receive. But I think, you know, I think for me, it's sort of one of those things that with the Jennifer Arcuri scandal, it was already baked into people's sort of perceptions of Boris Johnson that he was a, a bit of a cad and, you know, had been with a, with a lot of women or, or whatever the perception was of him. So that was already baked in by the time he was running to be prime minister. And he'd already won the Tory leadership election as well. And so it was one of those stories where it might might have been the reaction in people's minds that, oh, well, he well, he would do that, wouldn't he? He's Boris Johnson. Whereas with the Dominic Cummings scandal, it was a little bit less less of an expected thing to happen because the government had been so clear at that point and so sort of every day cementing its message about staying at home that you kind of saw the immediate hypocrisy. And with something like this, I wonder if it's already baked into people's opinions of the Conservative Party, whether they support them or, or, or they'd never vote for them either way that, yes, of course, you know, they have friends who are billionaires who who donate to their party. And yes, of course, they're in favour of big lucrative housing developments they would do that wouldn't they and it doesn't necessarily shift opinion either way yes and I think it's quite well known that for example at, at I 
think it's the Conservative Party annual ball. They pretty much auction off access to prominent politicians, including while in government. You could bid, you know, many, many thousands of pounds to play tennis with the prime minister or to have dinner with the chancellor. And without any suggestion of corruption there, I think that there there is a more uncomfortable relationship between the Conservatives and donors. And I, I also kind of wonder if, unlike the Arcuri story and the, the Cummings story, there's very little element of, of absurdity in this. I think that both of the, the other stories that we mentioned, even though one didn't get as much cut through as the other, like they were both, as well as being very enraging for a lot of people, they're both quite funny. And yeah. um, the element of absurdity definitely helped them travel longer. I think there was like the funny element of the, you know, the eye test to Barnard Castle and so on that helped the story like gave the story legs basically and helped it go on for longer through the mode of humor whereas I think the Robert Jenrick story is maybe a bit flatter which doesn't doesn't help but I thought it'd be worth asking you Anush because you've covered several aspects of this story before one thing that has been picked up on a little bit but maybe isn't being given enough attention is that the reason the the planning permission or the reason that Richard Desmond says he was keen to get the planning permission through quickly was to avoid, as you were saying, this particular tax in the Tower Hamlets council area, which is one of the most deprived communities in England. Or to be more specific, you can correct me on this, but to be more specific, it, it contains some of the most deprived communities in England because it's 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 measured by smaller areas than that. But it contains some of the most deprived areas in England which which gives it a kind of i think a sadder element that this is a a way of generating funds for the local council there um in a place where it is needed but i, I was wondering if you would for listeners who aren't who are less familiar with both tar hamlets and that specific tax i was wondering if you could explain how that works and and what its purpose would be in the context of that quite deprived area yeah, of course. So that's probably the only sort of eye-catching bit of this scandal is the text that Richard Desmond sent to Robert Jenrick saying, we uh, we appreciate the speed as we don't want to give Marxists loads of dough for nothing, exclamation mark. So what he's talking about there, his reference to Marxist is, is probably around about Tower Hamlets Council, which is run by the Labour Party. And the dough that he's misspelt, but is also referring to is the money that he would have to pay as part of this council charge that was due to come in on the 17th of January, 2020. So he wanted to try and get get the approval before then. And the money that he would have had to pay for this levy was, um, is thought to be around 45 million pounds. This is, this is, you know, this is something that that was used by Tower Hamlet's council before and other councils. It's called a community infrastructure levy. And it's a way for councils to raise revenue from new developments that come into their area. So basically, it's a tax, essentially a tax paid on on new developments, by new developments to fund other infrastructure or existing provision in the area, which local neighbourhoods actually want in a way to, as a sort of quid pro quo to kind of counterbalance the additional burden on a community of these kind of new developments that often don't serve the actual people who live in, in, that, in that local area. And Tower Hamlets is an East London borough, so it's one of those places where there's an awful lot of inequality and you have these very expensive flats going up all over the place, but the people who've always lived there um, couldn't possibly afford to live in them. And so that's sort of, 
it would have been spent, I think, on on health and education provision for the poorer communities in Tower Hamlets. Like you say, it is a very deprived borough. It also has London's highest rate of child poverty, with 57% of children living in poverty. So the reluctance to to pay money towards that, you know, maybe from a from a businessman's perspective is understandable, but it really does jar when you think of him as a as this billionaire and sort of <laughs> resenting spending money on on an area which he is obviously going to extract a hell of a lot of wealth from and an area that obviously needs that money as well. And you've done a bit of reporting from Tower Hamlets in the past. You did a piece at the, at the start of the pandemic on the loss of public space. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about about that side of, of life in, in Tower Hamlets and community space and so on. Yeah, of course. So um, at the beginning of the lockdown, Tower Hamlets was one of the few councils that decided to close one of its, well, its major park, Victoria Park, one of the major parks of London. And this was such a controversial decision because Tower Hamlets is an area of very high density housing. Lots of people don't have gardens or terraces or balconies or even communal gardens which they can use. And so that was a sort of case study for, for the piece that I did about Britain's parks and green spaces in general, which are under threat. So the number of people living further than a 10 minute walk from a public park will rise by 5% over the next five years. And that's going to hit areas like Tower Hamlets, which are the most deprived hardest, because obviously people like Richard Desmond really want to build on this land because it's, it's such high value land now. And I spoke to a mother of two young primary school aged children who they could, they only had the car park of her estate to play in even though that, that that particular estate does have um, communal gardens, but they've been closed because of the, the because of the pandemic as well. You know, it was just an example of how the coronavirus pandemic has exposed these kind of social problems, and Tower Hamlets is is a good place to to illustrate that. Yeah, and that was such a moving part of your piece. Always understated when you do them, but it's really really striking at the end of of that piece that the the two boys pick up handfuls of gravel to bring back to their flat so that they have a piece of the outdoors at home. Yeah, pretty heartbreaking. Yeah, and I mean, I think you were really onto something. I mean, you were commissioning a series at the New Statesman on the loss of public space before that became a huge issue at the forefront of people's minds because of coronavirus. And I think that the example of of Tower Hamlets, if we're thinking about it in a in a broader sense than just the Robert Jenrick connection, it just um it's an example of of so many of the of the social issues that have been highlighted by the pandemic. In the looking it up, I think it's like over fifty percent black and minority ethnicity, and as you say, like very high density housing and not very much public space. And these are the areas where people are suffering in particular from the effects of the virus, as we've seen. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Yeah, sadly, we're still missing Stephen, who's enthusiastic, chiming, <laughs> we usually rely on. So this is a good question from Josh Westerling. Thanks for sending it in. Why are Boris and co so bad at party management? So shall we look at the premise of the question first, Alva? Are they bad at party management? And what examples are there of that? Yeah, so this is a very, very prescient question, because I, I think it could be the downfall of, of Boris Johnson and or his government whenever that happens they definitely are bad at party management both in terms of managing relations within the cabinet um, and managing relations with the broader parliamentary party so we know that cabinet ministers feel like they are being treated very badly by Boris Johnson's government that they aren't kept in the loop about decisions but that is mirrored across the party so the um, the 1922 committee which represents all of the Conservative backbenchers, met with Boris Johnson, or more specifically their executives, so their sort of elected representatives, met with Boris Johnson last week, I believe. And it was their first meeting since the beginning of the year and since the beginning of the pandemic. And it's rare that things leak from the 1922 committee because it's meant to be a kind of vital backstream of communication between the prime minister and his backbenches and it's a sign that things aren't really right if you are hearing things from it but what they communicated to Boris Johnson really clearly was that he isn't taking care of his backbenchers and that includes numerous groups so the groups that they were particularly concerned about were the the new MPs elected in 2019 who were elected in in those red wall seats with often tiny majorities and who feel like they've been kind of left to fend for themselves in recent weeks over a huge string of controversial government decisions. So for example, they had to defend Dominic Cummings without being in full possession of the facts. They didn't have communication from number 10 about it. There was the U-turn over free school meals, which they felt that they expended a lot of political capital over. Mm. And there are lots of other examples there are also, as Stephen has written about really well on several occasions, there are also there's a sort of cohort of men elected before 2015 who are quite disillusioned about their prospects for advancement within the Conservative Party at the moment, um, who aren't being kept very happy. And then there are also, I mean, these overlap slightly, but there are also just former ministers of the people who. Boris Johnson sacked when he replaced Theresa May. Those people are not 
I don't even know how to describe it. So, I mean, you could you could say like, oh, they, they've, they're just unhappy because they've been scorned by Boris Johnson. But it's really, really interesting that in all these cases, but particularly in the case of former backbenchers, none of them were really beginning to rebel until quite recently in a lot mm. of cases. And so it's really an example across the board, taking like all the themes of all of these groups from the cabinet to the new MPs to the sort of older men, to the to the scorned ministers. There's an example across the board of, of a lack of communication between Downing Street and the back benches. So the premise of the question is, is entirely correct. In the case of those former ministers, the thing I think is really interesting is that they're only rebelling now, I think, because Boris Johnson hasn't been sort of doing the the necessary ego massaging behind the scenes. I was I was chatting about this with Stephen a couple of weeks ago when this started to become a really apparent theme. And we were talking about how most prime ministers would have a sort of scorned ministers club where like the the, the people in it wouldn't know that that's what they were in. But there would, be, <laughs> there would be a group of people who'd be, you know, regularly invited to Dining Street to chat with the prime minister who would take an interest in what they were pursuing on their various select committees or or in whatever ways they were you know continuing their careers in the public eye and the idea of a potential return to government at some point would sort of be dangled in front of them nothing would be promised but you basically keep the goodwill of those people because as some prime ministers used to see it there's a possibility that if you have to fire some current members of your cabinet, that you will have to bring former ministers back and you and you do have to keep them on side. But more generally, that they are powerful people within the parliamentary party and it's important for, for party harmony and good messaging that you that you keep them on side. So the premise is completely correct. The question why is a really interesting one. Mm. And my answer would be twofold. That in terms of Boris Johnson in particular, what you gather from sources and also from reading other other journalists' work on Boris Johnson is that he's actually much more introverted than his sort of bumbling persona would have you believe. And that he has never been very good at maintaining good relationships with other people in the party. And that that was an example of how his his attempted first run for Conservative leader collapsed almost immediately and the second one succeeded that with the advice of Carrie Simmons his partner who is herself a sort of influential and well-connected person in the Conservative Party regardless of her relationship with Boris Johnson she really advised him and coached him to to work on his relationships with MPs he got a new office in Portcullis House in like the top corner where he tried to meet with MPs individually and he tried to be present on the parliamentary estate to like go into the tea rooms and be approachable to MPs rather than, I think the the feeling was before he made the conscious effort that he used to sort of scuttle around the par- parliamentary estate and avoid eye contact, which is not what you would really expect. But the, basically, like, he, he's not naturally good at that. He did it for the, le- for the leadership contest under Carrie Simmons' direction and then stopped, basically. I think that's the the Boris Johnson side of things. And then the wider problem is that we know from a source told me, and I put it in morning call a few weeks ago, we know that the number 10 operation receives literally daily polling Mm. on public attitudes towards 
all the different elements of the coronavirus response and how they are personally feeling about it and um, on, on the government's exact messaging. Plus, they're spending a huge amount of mo- money on focus groups. And it's unlike anything that we've seen before, really, from, from number 10. Normally, polling would be sort of monthly. And so there's this feeling, I think, basically in number 10, that they don't need to be good at party management because they already have a direct line to voters through their own polling and focus groups. And where MPs used to be seen as valuable as a sort of important ear to the ground because they are in touch with their constituents and they hear what problems are coming up. They see it in their inboxes and on the streets. Where they used to be seen as an important ear to the ground, they're just sort of not anymore. Um, But I think that's a mistake because... There's only so much that focus groups can tell you. And what all these backbenchers would tell you is that there are a lot of recent government mistakes, like on free school meals, that just wouldn't have happened if Downing Street had been in touch with backbenchers and sided them out and and sought their opinion on things. Yeah, and I have to say that scoopette of yours about the, um, you know, almost daily public polling that they're receiving tells you probably the most about this government of any revelations that we've heard during this 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 pandemic i think and it does explain partly why their party management is so bad because let's not forget that conservative mps are not all driven by public opinion only they they have ideologies and there's no natural fit for boris johnson in any of the factions of the conservative party because he's a people pleaser you know now he's a public pleaser but you know in his bid to be Tory leader, he was a he was a Tory MP pleaser. Whatever whatever they wanted to hear, he would say, which means that he doesn't have a natural sort of Johnsonite base. He just has the people who felt like he was he was a winner, and they were right, and um, they backed him for for his leadership. But they they'd had all sorts of different opinions on Brexit and and other kind of touchstone Tory topics before that. Um, a good example of that is the China Research Group, which you, you spans the politics of the Conservative Party. You have Tom Tugendhat and, and Ian Duncan-Smith, both voicing their, their scepticism about the government's relationship with China. And that kind of ideology or, or worldview-led discontent shouldn't be bubbling up so soon in a new prime minister's premiership. And he shouldn't be losing votes with an 80 seat majority. And I think that partly the reason for that is because of this this obsession with chiming with public opinion and this kind of vote leave-esque approach. Yeah, I also think it, it raises an interesting question about advisors, because certainly in Corbyn's time, it was a criticism that you would hear a bit from Labour MPs that his advisors, people like Carrie Murphy or Seamus Mitton, basically were too driven by ideology and weren't as concerned with public opinion because ultimately they didn't have skin in the game in the same way. They weren't going to lose their jobs and lose their seats if things went wrong for Labour. And I think, I mean, there's no hint of that from Dominic Cummings in that he seems terribly concerned with public opinion and he sort of prides himself on being in touch with um, the public mood, even though that has not gone so well recently. But I think that, yeah, there is an element of it that backbench MPs are a really valuable resource because, I mean, as well as being guided by ideology in a way that Boris Johnson isn't, as you say, they have a have a much more real stake in 
in how the government's policies go. And I think it's really striking, like someone like Penny Mordaunt, who's still in the cabinet, she has been rebelling on certain issues. She rebelled on the piece that that Stephen covered really well, which saw the first government's defeat, the vote on um, the bullying and harassment policy in Westminster. But it also, she rebelled on that, but she also publicly called for Dominic Cummings to go. And that, wasn't because she sort of wanted to make a great name for herself, but because she's in a marginal seat. And I think that you get a real sense of the MPs where their jobs are at stake, of where the real mood is and where the the government needs to be on certain important issues. And if they're relying entirely on focus groups and not using that valuable resource that prime ministers have been using for generations, I think they're going to really suffer in the longer term. And we're already seeing it, I think. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleague, Alva Ray. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Mm-hmm.